I am so grateful for such a joyful song to follow what, let's be honest, was not maybe the most joyful scripture you've ever heard read in worship. You're so well trained. I said the word of God for the people of God, and you just said, thanks be to God. You thanks God for that. Something, something has taught us to trust even when it seems like there might be reason not to. My prayer is that in this moment we can discover a tremendous word of grace in a passage that maybe isn't the typical fare. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. We've been in the book of 1 Corinthians for a little while now, ever since the first Sunday of Easter. And there are several reasons that this book is the perfect one, particularly for Dauphin Way, as we celebrate the season of Easter. First and most importantly, the book of 1 Corinthians contains what is for my money the most beautiful, the most comprehensive, the most challenging, most wonderful scripture in all the Bible on the power of resurrection. The Gospels give us the facts of the resurrection. They tell us when and how it happened and who found out first and how Jesus appeared to his various followers. The Gospels tell us what the resurrection was. But it's Paul who tells us what resurrection means. 1 Corinthians is a great book for Easter because I cannot think of any message better for Easter Sunday than the one that we preached from 1 Corinthians 15 four weeks ago. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? For the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of 1 Corinthians is also a perfect book for Easter at Dauphin Way because as we've said these last few weeks, the book of 1 Corinthians has a lot to say about food. And as it turns out, we eat a lot during Easter at Dauphin Way. We have a lot to do with food in these weeks. There are 50 days between Easter Sunday and Pentecost, including seven days here at seven Sundays here at Dauphin Way. And as it turns out, nearly every one of those Sundays is a feast day. On Mission Sunday, we packed food in care packages for the homeless of our community. On Confirmation Sunday, we had 90 confirmands, parents and mentors eating breakfast in Moore Hall. Last week, we had cookies and other treats for the women of the congregation. Tonight, we have the fast track dinner. Next week, we have the spaghetti lunch. And in just a moment following the sermon, we will recognize our seniors who have just finished their senior breakfast. And I know what sort of advice I, as a pastor, am supposed to give to graduating seniors. I know what I'm supposed to do according to time-honored tradition. I'm supposed to tell them something about the world. Maybe the real world that they are about to enter. Specifically, I'm supposed to give advice and warnings. I'm supposed to give advice on how to resist the world and warnings about what happens if you don't listen to my advice. This is exactly what the world expects of preachers. That's what we see in popular television shows, 
and cultural understanding of what should happen at a baccalaureate service, for instance. And this is what I want to give our seniors as well, because I've seen enough of how the world works that I think I have some advice and some warnings to give. Hopefully, I'm still a little under halfway through my life. But having now been a pastor to thousands of people over the years, I already have more stories I could tell than I have time left in my life to tell them all. And I'd love to share a few of them here. A few pieces of advice and a few warnings. That's what most of us want, honestly, once we have a few years behind us. We want to be able to help someone else learn from the mistakes we've made. The mistakes that we've seen others make. The lessons that we've learned. We want to know that our mistakes can serve some purpose by maybe helping someone else out. Because if our mistakes serve no purpose, then maybe our mistakes don't matter. And if that's true, then maybe none of our life matters. And that is terrifying to contemplate. There are existential stakes behind our desire to give advice and give warnings. We are trying to make sense of the world, trying to make meaning in it. Genesis 1 tells us that God once hovered over the shapeless waters and brought forth from them creation, giving structure and shape to all that was good. And so we hover over our own lives, over our shifting memories and relationships, and we hope to give some structure to them, some story, some advice, or some warning. We hope to call forth something that will allow us to say out of all our lived experience, this is good. But it's too much for us to try and be like God. And I think Paul knew that. And I think that is maybe why in his letter to the Corinthians, he never bothers giving them any sort of advice or warnings about the world. In fact, none of Paul's letters have very much to say about the world. Don't misunderstand, there's plenty of advice. And there are plenty of warnings in Paul's letters. But none of them are about the world. In this passage, Paul explicitly says, there's no way to escape the world, so you shouldn't even try. Paul is not worried about the world. It is more dangerous, according to Paul, to spend time in an insincere church with insincere Christians. Maybe you find that hard to believe. The church in Corinth had a hard time believing it too. And the passage that we just heard, the one that we've read from a book that we call 1 Corinthians, it's important that this was not actually Paul's first letter to Corinth. There was another letter that he had written, an earlier letter, a letter that we can call the lost letter because we don't have it anymore. The only reason we know about it is because Paul mentions it here in what we just read. He says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my earlier letter not to associate with sexually immoral people 
And it seems that there was some confusion when Paul wrote that. We've described in the last few weeks how the city of Corinth was a busy international port city, a pluralistic society comprising hundreds of cultures and religions who all lived alongside one another. And within these cultures, there were a great diversity of practices and customs, including sexual practice. And some Corinthians would have had multiple spouses. Others would have had one spouse, but many slaves of both genders who were expected to serve them as partners. Still others would have visited the temple, visited temple prostitutes as a way of channeling and making meaning out of their physical desires. And so when Paul wrote in his first letter, his real first letter, the lost letter, when he wrote to the Corinthians that they ought not associate with the sexually immoral, the people who read that letter got the impression he was saying, you can't hang out with anybody except each other. And some of them who read that letter got the impression that Paul was saying, you shouldn't hang out with anyone but each other because you are better than all those other people. You are more enlightened it seems there were Corinthian Christians walking around town talking about how enlightened they were. And Paul knew that wasn't true. Earlier in the same chapter, Paul calls out two members of the church who were in an ongoing affair despite being each other's stepmother and stepson. They were even bragging about it, saying, if everything is forgiven, then everything is okay. This is what it means to be free in Jesus Christ. And that's what really gets Paul going. It's not just immorality. It's the bragging. It's the boasting. And you know that Paul is serious when he starts talking about food. And Today he says that this boasting is like a little bit of yeast that works its way through the entire loaf of bread. Two weeks ago we heard Paul say that knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Today, Paul takes it even further, says that boasting is even worse than knowledge. Boasting will make you look big and strong on the outside, while inside it leaves you empty and hollow. I wonder if you've ever made bread like that before. Anybody here try their hand at bread baking sometime in the last two years? It's quite the fad for a bit. Anybody here ever made a batch of bread that wasn't what it seemed to be. Anybody here ever baked a loaf of lies? You put in just a little extra too much yeast. You stuck it in the oven. When it came out, it looked like a perfect golden batch of sourdough, but it collapsed like Russian democracy the moment you tried to cut it. Paul is telling the church that if their walk with Christ is insincere, then this new, radical, spirit-inspired community will get puffed up with so much hot air and eventually it will fall apart. And then Paul makes it clear that he is not only or even primarily concerned with just this one outrageous relationship in the church that they have asked him about. He's not even concerned primarily with sexuality in general. It matters, but not for obsessing over the way the world does. Paul has lots of other things on his mind, too. The first thing he actually mentions is malice. Let us feast, but not on the old yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul cares about malice, about ill will, about resentments, about cruelty to one another. 
and our tendency to boast of those things. Then there's this moment where Paul pauses to say, and by the way, none of this applies to non-Christians. He says, go ahead, hang out with them all you want. You can't get away from them. Who am I or any of us to judge those who are outside the church? I am not trying to tell you to cut yourself off from the world entirely. But Paul says the only way you're going to make yourself, make your way through the world is if you do it in the company of those who live by sincerity and truth. And then Paul picks up his original train of thought and he says, but now I am writing that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Do not even eat with such people. I expect that sounds harsh to our ears. It may even sound painful because I promise you there are at least a dozen people in this room right now who have felt exactly that kind of rejection from Christians before. You've had the moment in some church when you were turned away from the communion table or when a a group of good churchgoers formed a holier-than-thou huddle around the donut table, a circle of backs turned toward you with no room for anyone new to enter the conversation, Maybe it caused you to ask, what's wrong with me? I think about those seniors who are graduating today, both from high school and those from college, because both Pastor Woods and I have had our stints as professional college ministers, and we both know that sometimes the church is much more effective than the world in causing young adults to doubt their faith. I want to ask you, if that's you today, feeling attacked by these words, to hang in just a little longer, even if you're hanging on by the tips of your fingers. Because I am convinced that this passage is gospel. It is a gospel that pierces hypocrisy and collapses the church's tendency to condemnation. And I don't want you to miss it. I want to give you a glimpse of the gospel in Paul's word to the church today. And the first word is that your sins, whatever they may be, are nothing special. Sometimes the church acts like some sins are really special. We really harp on some while totally ignoring others. My experience is that we tend to harp on the ones that we think are easy to define and describe, whereas we tend to ignore the ones that are a little bit more woolly. Like, we don't have standards or doctrines for greediness, because we're not really sure what makes someone greedy. Most of us tend to define greed as whenever somebody has more than what I want. But that's a little hard to define. (laughs) Put onto paper, it's not very fair either. Same goes for slander. I mean, what's the line between venting about someone in a therapeutic way and slandering them? Who can say? So we usually don't. (laughs) But maybe somewhere along the line, you knew the difference in your own self. 
Maybe somewhere you became very aware of your own struggle, your own sin, your own worst tendencies. And now that you know, you find yourself thinking, does this mean I'm not a real Christian? Am I somehow worse than everybody else? Maybe you've thought to yourself, if I show up at church, God will know that I don't mean it and people around me might guess that too. And if that's you today, hear me. Whatever your sin is, whatever your struggle, I promise it is not some super special sin that is stronger or worse than anyone else's and it is not the one being called out today. Paul's word to the Corinthians was not about expelling imperfect people. If we tried to have a church with no greedy folk, gossips, or malice, then we would have empty pews every week. No. The first word of hope is that Paul did not single out any particular kind of sinner as a problem for the church because sinners are not a problem for the church. We, we sinners, are the church. Paul is not concerned that the church might have sinners. He is troubled because the church in Corinth has become a place where people boast of their sin. It has become a place where people have begun to live as if nothing matters. I can do this, I can do that, and you can't tell me nothing. There were some in the church who came because they knew they needed deliverance. They needed healing for real pains in their life, real suffering that had been inflicted upon them. They needed deliverance. They needed forgiveness for real pain and real hurts they had inflicted on others. They needed love and community and the commitment of brothers and sisters in a world that previously had treated them as disposable slaves. There were some who came knowing their need. And then there were some in the church who rather than saying, I need that too. We're saying instead, laugh it off. None of it matters. Jesus' love means never having to say you're sorry. If you're here today feeling as though you know your failings all too well, then Paul's word is not against you. And in fact, he is saying that that humility is exactly why the church exists. He's saying that the church is for people like you. And whether you know it or not, you are probably closer to God than you have ever been. And help is nearer than you know. It may be as close as the nearest honest person. And please understand, an honest person is not someone who tells you the hard truth about yourself. An honest person is the one who's willing to tell the truth about themselves. Desmond Tutu once said, I don't preach a personal gospel or a social gospel, a political gospel or a spiritual gospel. I just preach the gospel, period. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is concerned for the whole person. When people were hungry, Jesus didn't say, now is that political or social? He said, I feed you. Because the good news to a hungry person is bread. And if you are hungry for the gospel in today's scripture, then hear this part again. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
sincerity and truth. That's what satisfies. That's what feeds the soul. Sincerity and truth. I think that's one reason that supper clubs have been such a long-standing part of Dauphin Way's way of making disciples. It's where we practice truth. It's kind of hard to hide your whole self from people with whom you meet over and over over long periods of time when you meet with no agenda and no lessons to learn and no questions to give the right answers to, only the question of how's it going and the practice of learning to be honest and tell the truth in response. Supper clubs are a little bit different than a class. It's where we don't just give answers. We learn to tell the truth. And in the church, we have a special name for it. Anytime somebody says the truth, we call it a confession. And a lot of people think of confession in one particular way, and and it's real. We think when we confess our sins, that is a confession. Sure. But when we say that Jesus Christ is Lord, that is a confession too. Confession of faith. Paul will say to the Romans, If you confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, leave in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confessions can be of powerful truths as well. Most of us will spend our whole lives learning how to tell the whole truth. There will always be some part of ourselves we are reluctant to share, sometimes with good reason. Some people will promise we can trust them and their promise collapses under the slightest pressure. But while we are learning how and when we can share our full selves with the world, we know that we can always share our full self with God, the one who already knows the whole truth and loves us. And we can be a church that makes room for the truth. A church that promises to forgive, to redeem, to heal even the hardest truths. And at the very least, if we can't always tell everybody everything, we can't agree not to lie. That, it turns out, is the problem with boasting. It's always a lie. Even if every word of the boast is true, the spirit of it is meaningless and just so much hot air. To boast is to place yourself at the center of the story rather than God. To boast is to stand in your own strength, your own power, your own gifts, when the truth is there's always somebody stronger, more powerful, more talented than you who is doing half as well. The truth is that all good things, salvation and our daily bread, only come to us by the grace of God. And anything less than that is dishonest. And it will not satisfy. But when the people of God come together in sincerity and truth, If I have any advice about the world, it is this. Find Jesus in it. 
You will find him wherever sincerity and truth are given out like daily bread and wherever empty boasts are tossed away like stale leftovers. And if I have any advice for the church today, it is this. Let's make sure the world can find Jesus here. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.